This is Abrupt Future, the podcast on the future of work that happened faster than we thought. Each week, we feature conversations with experts in leadership, management, human resources, culture, and technology to help you succeed in this new normal. This is your host, Benoit Ardivalle. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Abrupt Future. This week, we speak with Dave Cook. Dave is a PhD researcher in anthropology at uh, University College of London, or UCL, and he specializes in digital nomads who works out of co-working space in Southeast Asia. So first of all, Dave, thanks for joining and welcome to the show. Hi, Benoit. So, Dave, I would like to dive it into your topic of study and expertise. When I think about digital nomads, I have this archetype of a younger, let's call it a millennial, who read the four hours workweek book by Tim Ferriss and then sailed off to Southeast Asia and then traveled to work working in exotic locations. So, first of all, what's, what is a digital nomad? Benoit, your characterization is quite accurate on some levels. I mean, most of the um, research participants on my study um, are millennial. People are in their early 20s and early 30s. Um, a lot of people have read the four-hour work week and other books such as Ralph Potts's uh, Vagabonding. And they are trying to create their own sense of autonomy and freedom by combining travel and work. And you were telling me you were five years into a seven-year research um, study on digital domain. What have you learned about that? Yeah, so um, the paper that I just published a couple of months ago um, in March was the first four or five years of data that I was presenting. What's been really interesting is when I started off researching this topic, I really wanted to understand why people wanted to work and move from country to country. And, you know, what would, you know, what would happen under conditions of being a transnational worker um, and moving from place to place? And the research did end up being about that. One, one of the really interesting things that occurred Um, once I looked at data over the first six months, the first year, the first year or two, was that as well as traveling to other countries um, and living there and sampling all of the delights that you can do in um, Malaysia or Thailand um, and experiencing that lifestyle, they ended up really engaging with very elaborate um, disciplining and productivity practices. And that certainly wasn't the narrative. That certainly wasn't what digital nomads were talking about when they first embarked on these personal quests, these personal quests of freedom. People talked about escaping the nine to five and not being micromanaged, not having to commute into the office every day. And I just found that it was really, really fascinating that I ended up studying how people were time boxing their time um, and learning how to be productive and also I think it was really really interesting that people were rejecting commuting and the nine to five and they go all of the way to Thailand 
then they'd go and work in a co-working space, which is essentially another form of an office. And, you know, sometimes they would be working out of their apartments or their Airbnbs. But if they were, they would create little mini commutes so so that they could separate the boundaries between, um, you know, their leisure time and their work life. And I thought that was fascinating. (laughs) Is the principal motivation then work-related or is it mostly about, you know, I'm going to be living in those countries where the cost of life is cheaper? Have you found that some of these motivations are stronger than others? Um, I mean, obviously, everybody's motivations initially are different. But if you go to um, a digital nomad conference, and there are quite a few, Um, different um, conferences that you can go to um, around the world. One of the themes that will crop up at those conferences and also in blogs about digital nomads is I I choose freedom or I want to um, attain a certain amount of freedom. And sometimes these things are chanted at these um, digital nomad um, conferences. But what people don't really talk about is what freedom um, really means. So, If you read Digital Nomad blogs, um, a lot of the themes and the subject matter is about what they're trying to escape. So, as I said before, the commute, the office, um, workplace obligations, the nine to five. So it's a narrative um, of of escape and they want to be um, in an environment where they can holistically bring together their work life and their non-work life, their work and their leisure. And that's where things become a little bit difficult because it's one to try and integrate all aspects of your life. But, you know, as I think we're finding during COVID-19 and during the pandemic, when we're having this unprecedented working from home global experiment, um, trying to integrate all of these things within a single space where you're living or even within a single neighborhood is extremely tricky and difficult. It's almost like they are an extreme form of remote work, right? Like they brought the idea of remote working to... to yeah, I mean, extreme. I think we have quite a lot to thank Digital Nomads for, and I, I have a lot to thank them for, because one of the things that is unique about Digital Nomads, and one of the reasons why they are so relevant to um, this COVID-19 because they live in a state of perpetual isolation. So they might be moving around from you know, Bangkok to Chiang Mai, Koh Phangan, um, Penang, all of these different places. My, my research um, area was mainly in Southeast Asia, but there are other locations as well. So they may be moving from place to place, but they are you know, still, you know, they're still isolated. They're still having to work across time zones and they are still primarily working on their own. So that is a very relevant context to the position that people are finding themselves today working in their spare rooms, their bedrooms, in their kitchens, um, at the end of these digital spokes. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in my research with digital nomads, I call them hub and spoke work practices in Chiang Mai or anywhere in Southeast Asia, you will see these people, these digital nomads working, sitting at desks. They're normally um, in rows, um, all facing in the same direction. They're not collaborating within the same space and they're working 
across these digital spokes, normally with clients and companies back in their home countries. Um, so in that way, it, you know, these co-working spaces, are, sometimes there's some collaboration that goes on, but I was quite surprised um, after the first couple of years that, you know, that there didn't seem to be that much collaboration within the space. All of the communication was with people, you know, at the other end of um, Skype calls and email back in the home countries. So, so they end up being individual workers surrounded by other individuals. Exactly. Workers. So, you know, if you walk into um, most co-working spaces, um, you know, I'm talking about Asia here, but the same could be happening in places like Medellin in, in, in Colombia. Um, you're going to get a group of um, different people ranging from computer coders, graphic designers, journalists, um, and they're all working in different businesses. So um, there's not much for them to share in terms of what we call their community of practice. So um, it's very, very unlikely that you're going to get three book editors, single co-working space. Um, so they're communicating with other people who are specialists in their area via digital means as well. And people might go out for lunch and some co-working spaces are better than others at trying to foster um, community. But at the end of the day, they are very, very like individual workers at the end of um, at the end of spokes. And they don't have necessarily much in, in common in terms of the work that they do. However, have you found anything that is quote unquote typical? Uh, you mentioned there the age, um, the, the age of the digital nomads, but what about their industry, um, background, or any other personal trajectory? Yeah, I mean, if I look at my study and I look at the numerous other studies um and, and there are more emerging now i mean a couple of years ago there were very few studies on digital nomads but the ones that have been um emerging um center and tend to throw up the same uh, demographics so i would say that a high proportion of you know people that you will find in co-working spaces and in digital nomad centers like um chiang mai um have um a university um degree um and, you know some people um have a postgrad degree but um, the vast majority of people that i come into contact have been in some kind of further education and yeah and, and so so that's very much shared um and across all of the different studies people tend to be in their 20s and in their 30s you do get some people um in their 40s um and in their 50s but that is not Um, that is not the norm. They, they are the outliers. And I would guess also typically not in a family situation. <laughs> It sounds like they are individuals, yeah, rather I mean, than couples that... or families. Which, you know, in these days and age, <laughs> yes, I no, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, if you if you go online and you do a search for digital nomads and families and with children, you will find some people that are blogging um, about traveling with their families. Um, that tends to be for shorter amount amounts of time, and we can talk a little bit about you know how long people become digital nomads. Interesting in of itself. Um, yes. However, th there are a few outliers that are traveling um, with kids, um, but it's very difficult to, um, you know, travel with kids unless it's a, you know, for a specific um, period of time. 
some people are traveling in couples, but most of the people that I have met and most of the people who um, have been researched and picked up in other studies tend to be um, single. But one of the things that's really quite interesting um, about digital nomads is a lot of people do aspire to be um, in a relationship. And I know that there are some people creating some Tinder-like products um, specifically for digital nomads. Um, But there's a term that I've heard (laughs) that has been... um, used from time to time which is called couplepreneur now a lot of digital uh, digital nomads aspire Mm. to be entrepreneurial in some kind of way even if they're essentially a freelancer this language of entrepreneurialism um, is very strong within the digital nomad community and so the ideal is to hook up with somebody else who not only you might share a romantic interest with that you might be able to work with as well and become a kind of like a traveling couple brand. Um, And some people, um, you know, do, uh, um, you know, are able to do this. I mean, two quite famous digital nomads, Marcus Mara and and his um, partner who run DNX. Um, They're quite quite a famous couple. Um, But it's something that a lot of digital nomads aspire to. And how long are people living this life is this a few years is this uh one year and then they're out or is there no yes so this is really really interesting so if you go to a conference or you read somebody um, somebody's blog who um, has just become a digital nomad they're at the beginning of their digital nomad story their own kind of personal voyage if you like um that a lot of people talk about um adopting the lifestyle permanently and this is where it's really really important to conduct a a study over a number of years and it's like been really illuminating to um, um, study digital nomads over half a decade and there's some more research time left on this study and what people say they're going to do at the beginning (laughs) really changes over time so some people do stay on the road for more than a couple of years these tend to be the people that are most vocal they go on social media most and they talk about it and some people even make a living blogging or trying to um, make an income blogging about the digital nomad lifestyle but what i found in my research is that uh, a high proportion of people do it for a specific amount of time uh, quite a few people give it up after six months um, a very high proportion um, over a year um, I, I'm doing qualitative search I'm an anthropologist so I'm not doing quantitative data so I don't want to put a percentage on it but I would say um, that um, 90% of the people that I have met have given up on the lifestyle within the first one or two years. And just to add to that, I think more research, you know, that's an area where more research is needed to the lifespan of, you know, these aspiring digital nomads, because that, you know, may change. Um, and again, um, you know, after COVID-19, a lot of people who have been very resistant um, to living and working in their home countries have been forced to go home. People have, um, you know, stayed in the place where they were working and left themselves, um, you know, open to, um, you know, local laws and local policies. Um, but a very high proportion of people have gone home. And we will see whether this is temporary or not. In your 
article publishing information technology and tourism you talk about the use of disciplining practices to manage work leisure boundaries can you share a little bit about these yeah practices? this is this was the thing that really surprised me so I thought that I was going to um, study these really exciting practices of digital nomads and their attempts of being very cosmopolitan and, and global, moving around the world, working in exciting um, locations. And it was about that. But after, um, after the first couple of years and being co-working spaces and working around digital nomads, I, I just noticed that so many conversations turn towards how people manage their time, how they discipline themselves and how they stay productive. Because when you are moving around, every time you move around to a new location, it is very disruptive. So you have to be very, very focused and you have to draw on um, as many focus and productivity strategies as you can to get yourself up and running in a new location and not, not get completely dis distracted by these new environments, these new towns or locations or beaches. And that was essentially what the uh, journal article and the um, interim results of the study became about. So one of the, one of the first things that I noticed was that and participants on my study um, were drawn to co-working spaces. A lot of people were initially working out of their rented apartments and their Airbnbs, um, but they were finding that they just weren't able to get their work done. And, you know, I think as a lot of people are finding out right now, if you don't go out for a morning walk, <laughs> you don't do something in the evening to break up the working day, mm -hmm. everything really becomes a, an unmanageable mess. So one of the first things that I noticed was that people were going to um, co-working spaces. And then when they were going into co-working spaces, they were doing things like leaving their mobile phones um, back um, you know, in their apartments, if it was nearby, or they were putting them out of reach, or they were putting it, putting them in their bag. And this is because they were trying to, you know, sort of like manage a separation between doing focus work, um, which you're most likely going to do on your laptop, and then keeping all of the important communication um, and social media, which, you know, mainly resides, resides on the phone, with all notifications and just keeping them at bay so that they could get through and do some of their most important tasks um, of the day. One of the, um, one of the productivity practices that was spoken about was called MIT, which is most important task. I didn't actually know what that acronym stood for. I'd never heard of it before until I did this research. I'm actually now practicing that myself. <laughs> so what I, I personally tend to do, and this is just based on inspiration from digital nomads, is I'll do all of the things that I need to, um, to do, get some exercise, do it all in the morning, and then I'll sit down at about eight o'clock in the morning. I'll put aside two to three hours just to do focused, uninterrupted tasks, and I will put my phone away. And um, this is this is all inspired by um, observing and being in co-working spaces and talking and living with digital nomads. When I first saw people talking and blogging about this, I thought it was quite absurd. 
<laughs> and I kind of like thought, what you know, why, 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 why do you need to do this? This is like really crazy. And until you know, I was like sitting down and trying to do my own focus, um, focus work, and I was getting distracted. Some days not going into the co-working space, and I totally got you know why they were doing it so um yeah so that's one of the the first disciplining practices and then that moves on to other things that i observed for example when people are traveling and working in couples whether they're working in a co-working space or out of an airbnb or a rented apartment just being around someone else that it's going to turn around and say hey you haven't taken a break for three hours you need to get up and walk bring some rhythm and structure into the day so it, it really became clear um, by year three that the people that were doing well the digital nomads that were doing well um, were those that were engaging with these practices and disciplining structures that were helping them structure their day and their work week and those that were just working out of their apartments or their airbnbs all the time and they weren't managing this boundary between work and non-work were really struggling and some of the people that really struggled in this way just went home so it's almost like they they had to become this very autonomous and self-driven and fully accountable for their own work type of worker right because you are without the structure of an organization without you know a manager you are a freelancer there go you're managing your time based on outcomes which if i'm right it's a little bit of what we are advising now people who choose or or have to because of yes COVID, i mean this is home. this is the key paradox that we face when we actually get to experience freedom and this is why i called you know this initial journal article the freedom trap because once people are faced with being in an ideal location where they wanted to be no one is telling them where to do then that's really really terrifying and what human beings need even the most um, autonomous and individual human beings need some kind of structure now some people are able to structure things very effective themselves very effectively themselves and i was speaking to um, a journalist um, for the brazilian newspaper o globo yesterday and um, she asked me if there were any um, inequalities that were arising because of this crazy um you know massive remote experiment which is happening across the globe and of course there are all of the inequalities that some people can work from home and some people can't people that work in retail um, and entertainment um, can't work um, remotely at the moment but there's another more subtle inequality that people really haven't realized um, is there and that's the ability to be able to self-discipline yourself and manage your own time And these things go unnoticed more easily if you're going in to an office and you have a line manager and you have one-to-one -one meetings. You know, in many ways, people that aren't great at managing and disciplining themselves in this kind of way get by because they're outsourcing this sense of discipline and this sense of structuring to the office, to the commute or to their job, their organization. And now that people are working from home, nearly, you know, every white collar is working from home. These inequalities are beginning to raise their head 
in terms of mental health issues. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's certainly, I'm sure once all that is done, we're going to learn uh, a lot about, um, you know, people's personal yeah. stories and struggles. Uh, I am doing research at the moment into the uh, remote working experience. And one of the things that I'm finding is there are a lot of people who are saying that the whole working from home thing is going really well for me. I think it's really important we take that data and we look at it, but we also look at what is happening over time because I am getting a sense that some people are saying that, but they're not really feeling it. And as you study this uh, tribe, uh, so to speak, uh, and, you know, even when they're embedded yourself in their way of life, uh, I know you also publish a, uh, another article on the key trends that will shape the, the future of work. Have you learned something from those nomads that you think will apply to the broader workforce of the future? You know, I think uh, myself as a researcher, and I think people in ger general have, you know, quite a lot to thank digital nomads for, because sometimes digital nomads really annoy and aggravate people when they kind of like post pictures to like working on a laptop um, on the beach <laughs> just to say um, you know um, nobody works on a laptop on the beach you can't because um, you wouldn't put an expensive computer in the sand and you just, you can't see the screen I mean you know this is this is an ongoing in joke even for digital nomads but some people do find them a little bit um, triggering and you know digital nomads do make quite a lot, lot of noise on the social media um, so um, you could say that for some people they might have a bit of an image problem, but they also teach us quite, you know, they're teaching us um, how to not just telework, not, you know, we sort of like, you know, work over an internet connection from home, but as I said in the article, you know, firmly implanted in popular culture that we can work from a cafe and we can work from a co-working space and we can work from another location. And it might not just be somebody from San Francisco working in Thailand or somebody from London um, working in Medellin, Colombia. The point I was making my article is that, you know, somebody uh, in Toronto, in Canada, could go to, um, you, you know, Vancouver or they could go to um, the East Coast Um of Canada or somewhere more rural um, and the same you know could apply in in the UK or in the United States and I you know that um, that dialogue and that discourse is beginning to happen um, right now and then that talks to what is the future of cities and I know a lot of stuff is suddenly suddenly being written about what the role of cities means and um, you know where you know where our office is going to be based, and I think some of that is a, ref a reflex action and a knee-jerk reaction. In the same way, now everybody has been asked to work from home, and it's now the norm for people to have experienced work working from home. Nobody is saying that they missed the daily commute. And it is really hard to put that genie back into the bottle. You know, when you have an extra, you know, one or two or some, in some cases, three additional hours a day um, to play with. And I now think that the onus is going to be put onto corporations and onto employers to convince workers why they should come into the office and drag themselves through the daily commute every day. 
you know, before this kind of dialogue about flexible working, it's kind of like felt as if it's been the responsibility of the worker to try and convince their bosses that they're good enough to work in this way. And that whole conversation has been turned on its head. Absolutely. Well, Dave, first of all, I wanted to thank you a lot for your time. I guess maybe one, one last thought for you as we, we go into this, uh, this new world. Maybe we won't be digital nomads, but maybe digital settlers or, or something like that, right? And, and in between the... Even before COVID-19, digital nomads were staying longer in each location. And I used the term digital slowmad because instead of, <laughs> instead of kind of like traveling every, you know, every two weeks or every <laughs> month, you've got to remember that nice. a lot of digital nomads initially are traveling on tourist visas. So, you know, that means if you're from the United States or if you're from Europe and you're in Thailand, um, you have to travel every month or so uh, and you have to leave the country. And in Thailand, for example, it's become harder to re-enter the country after you've left. They've kind of clamped down on all of that kind of stuff. So as digital nomads explore the practice more deeply and they decide is the lifestyle for them they learn quite a lot more about the visa regulations and they might stay in one place for longer or they might research um, uh, another country i think it's easier to get um, a longer visa if you go to malaysia for example if you're from the uk so um some of the um, nomads, nomads um, on my study have gone to um, other locations they're not or where I started to um, speak to them, <laughs> they do move. As you know, we have this new concept of digital slowmads. I think um, that can make more sense to people that still working and staying in London, but remote working, because you know people do have family ties, and you know they do have caring responsibilities. So. Maybe kind of like relocating from, you know, Vancouver, maybe into the countryside nearby or from London, you know, to somewhere on the south coast might be, you know, sort of like more palatable, more um, easy, easy to stomach for some people and make more sense to a broader range of people. And I think this is where we're going to see big structural changes. This was Abrupt Future. I hope you learned something valuable. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and any feedback or rating is greatly appreciated. On LinkedIn and in real life, my name is Benoit Hardy Valley and I thank you for your time.